Hello, I'm Rishad Tabakawala. I'm an author of a book called Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. I'm today also a speaker and advisor. One of the firms I advise is the Publicis Group, which is an 87,000 person marketing and business transformation firm, where I spent my entire 37 year full-time working career, most recently as both its chief strategist and chief growth officer. Rishad, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for inviting me. First question I must ask you is what prompted you to write this book about staying human, as the title says, in an age where, you know, in advertising, marketing, data, it's, it's all seen as the answer to everyone's uh, brand problem. The reason I wrote it is because I was beginning to realize that the focus on what I call the spreadsheet or the data or the math, while important, uh, I have an undergraduate degree in advanced mathematics. I have an MBA at finance. When I worked at the group, I worked very hard to buy data companies. I led some of the digital efforts. So I'm very pro-data. But I began to believe that skewing too much towards the data to the math and the spreadsheet actually ended up with companies, individuals, and cultures suffering. Hmm. And the reality was it wasn't just about the spreadsheet, but it was also about the story. It wasn't just about the math. It was about the meaning and the magic. And so the book basically said, we are living in an age of data, an age of technology, but what will differentiate, separate us is basically the culture, the humanity, the provenance, and the storytelling. And that comes to be true. And then the book explains why by proving again and again, uh, by looking at the same company before and after. So a company that was skewed towards only data and then talked about data plus something else like, you know, the soul. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, think about, you know, Microsoft before and after Satya Nadella. Or I will take the same category, airlines in the United States, look at the top four airlines and ask what differentiates American and United from Southwest and Delta. And one of those sets, which is Southwest and Delta, are much more driven by culture, much more driven by story. The other two are driven completely by math. Let me know if the two companies that have high turnover have gone bankrupt three, four times. It's the ones that are all about data and math. So you see that again and again. And I truly believe that data is like electricity. You can't do without it. But tell me, if you're competing with other people who use electricity and not with people who are using steam, how is that a differentiator? Very interesting. And all of this seems to have started from a spark you tell in your book about a story uh, of an experience with one of your first mentors. Uh, I believe uh, her name was Jane or is Jane. Yes. I wonder if you tell me a little bit about, you know, this moment. What, what happened there? So when I began my career at what was Leo Burnett, uh, one of my bosses or my boss at that time uh, was a person who ran all of the research departments. And we were building a case for a brand new media that was being born called cable television. And she and I ran the math and we could see that cable television was going to be pretty formidable. But we had to convince our overall leader, who was a big believer in network television, that this cable television thing was for real. 
And we first tried to sell it to him by just showing the math on a spreadsheet and we were thrown out of the room, okay? Because in effect, we were basically telling him that cable television over time might become bigger than network television and he should focus on that versus telling him that in order to reduce the overall prices that our clients would pay and to extend their reach, he should add a little bit of this to what he knew particularly well. So we should have basically sold it that he was in the pizza business and we had a new Tabasco sauce versus telling him that Tabasco sauce was going to be more important than pizza. And so it was a combination of knowing how to tell a story, how to fit it in the overall architecture that got me to begin to realize that while we are living, and today we are living in a data-driven digital silicon age, everything we do and every person we deal with is an analog carbon-based feeling person. And we actually choose with our hearts and we tell we basically use data to justify what we just did. And so for all the people who basically say we are making data-driven decisions, I said that is not true. Number one, you were born because your parents made a non-data-driven decision. The ROI on childhood is not so good. So that's number one. <laughs> number two, if you wear a watch or drive a car, and if you wear a watch, why are you doing that? Your phone has a better watch. And if you drive a car that's more expensive than the Toyota Camry, why are you doing that? It makes no sense from an economic perspective. And what justifies that the most valuable company in the world and the most valuable company in Europe are called Apple and LVMH, which do not compete on price, but compete on design, storytelling, provenance. So I said, everywhere around you, you know what you're saying is not true. So why are you saying this, that it's all about data? That's really fascinating. Uh, you recently wrote uh, in your newsletter about the third connected age, uh, AI, 5G, VR, Metaverse, yep. Web3. Obviously, with change comes opportunity. So using the lens of your book, right, Restoring the Soul of Business, what are the implications now if we, if we need to concern ourselves with focusing too much on data and not enough on human connection? So here's the basic belief, you know, at heart, all technology that has worked has allowed human connection or enabled godlike power among humans. What I mean by that? Uh, we, when we had the World Wide Web, we were beginning to connect to discover and we were beginning to connect to transact, if that makes sense, right? And we call that search and we call that e-commerce, but it was basically human beings like to shop and human beings like to discover. Yeah. Right. Then some companies allowed us to connect all the time and connect to everybody. We call that social and mobile, but it was a human need. The third generation is also about human connections. So what are the connections that we're looking for that we don't have? We want to connect faster. And that's what 5G is. We want to find new ways to connect and voice, augmented reality, and virtual reality are new ways to communicate and connect, right? We want our connections to make life even easier for us, which is machine learning, which is tell me what I want before I know it, 
to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And as importantly, one of the things we are now questioning is who do we trust? So we want new types of trust connections, which is blockchain. So fundamentally, I explain to people that the technologies that best scale are ones that actually satisfy human needs. So don't focus that much on technology, but focus on human connections. You know, human connections to discover, to transact, to make it easy to connect all the time. And those are what makes a new age. And if you focus on that, you don't like lose the plot. And similarly, you know, I am, you know, sort of very involved in trying to understand and making sense of what I call the future of the internet. and I've recently put together stuff for boards, which I do do, where I explain to them that Web3 and Metaverse and crypto and NFTs are all very different things, okay? And they keep smooshing them into one thing. They're connected, but they're different things. Uh, and, and once I explain it in that way, and then I explain it how underlying human things, I also remind them that at the very heart of it, and as someone, by the way, who spends a lot of time with an Oculus Quest 2 or other kinds of stuff, you know, the metaverse, while being particularly magical, and will get more magical over the next X number of years, is eventually about your innerverse, mm. right? And it's really about new horizons. And, you know, one of these days when I have the right angle, my Substack newsletter will have a Oculus Quest headset on top of a book of poetry. And I'll basically call it Metaverse versus Innerverse. Huh. Very, very nice. I remember not too long ago uh, in, in presentations about media in the future, people would love to speak about Blockbuster and Netflix. Yeah. You know, it, would, it would be used as a case study of this is what's going to happen to you, your industry, your business, if you don't change with the times. Uh, recently, we've seen uh, Netflix, their value plummet, uh, I believe, almost 60% in the past uh, 12 months. What's the learning from this? or What, what can we learn from this in the advertising? <clears throat> I think there are three lessons to learn, really. One is Netflix is a great company that did a lot of pioneering stuff. But in its early years, nobody took it seriously because it seemed to come from what was known as the slime versus the heavens. Heavens was television broadcasting and slime was internet, right? And this was a company that came from two slimy areas. One was the internet and prior to that postage, it would mail CDs, right? And as someone who basically worked both in data-based direct marketing and the early days of the internet, we were basically looked down. We weren't even the caboose on the goddamn train. We were basically the piece of coal that was thrown behind the train, okay? Um, And so one of it, the first thing is don't look down upon things that come from nowhere. You know, as I explained to people, you know, every industry that's changed has changed from outside. The automotive industry wasn't changed by the automobile companies. It was changed by Tesla and Uber. Um, So, you know, to a great extent, that was the first lesson. So pay attention. The second lesson is at some particular stage, a successful company begins to get high on itself. And that is what basically happened to Netflix. It'll continue to be very formidable. And I don't necessarily associate a company at any given time with its current stock price. But what basically began to happen is Netflix began to get high on itself. And there were three indications that it got high on itself. 
One is it turned from being an underdog to a bully. Hmm. Among the things it did is it bought the company that owns all the billboards in LA so they could only have their movies on billboards. That's kind of interesting, a blockbuster type of move, okay, which is number one. Number two is they actually began to believe that they were a technology company versus a content company. Yes, they had a very good streaming platform and they began to leverage data on certain things. But to my point, everybody caught up. I have the opportunity and probably the addiction of loving all kinds of media. And because I can afford it, I subscribe to 20 different streaming services. Wow. Okay. I have 20 different streams and people don't even know there are 20 different. There are more than 20, but they're 20. And you know, there's odd ones like Mubi and Criterion and the British ones like Akon and Britbox, but I have 20 of them. Okay. Every single one of them. Um, and what I began to realize is Netflix was just like all the rest. Okay. Yeah. Especially when you sort of certain things and that they were no longer really about people had caught up on the data and technology or their data and technology edge was not an edge. The only edge that they had left was they had a fantastic way of sourcing international movies and what was actually or international content, right? Whether it's Squid Games or Peaky Blinders or you know things like that. And so somewhere along, they began to have terrible, inter so that's the second, right? You become a bully, you believe. And the third is you then have a cult-like language. And that's when I knew they were in trouble. Hmm. So they have this thing called a keeper. Are you a keeper? So everybody basically says, would you hire this person if you could hire them again, right? And so they, and, and at some particular stage, this keeper thing became pretty stupid. It's a way of like getting rid of people you don't want, right? And the other is, if you are a keeper, then you're, and if you have a keeper thing, it, it's become transactional. I've spent 37 years in a company. Let me tell you, there were years I wasn't that good. And there were years that I was pretty world-class. But if every year people would look at me and say, is this person world-class today? Not, were they world-class yesterday and can they be world-class tomorrow? But are they world-class at this moment? I would have been fired, hmm. right? But the inability for a storytelling company to understand that humans are stories and have ups and downs and to basically have a way of leveraging people, which is completely transactional, basically meant that people only stayed there because of the high stock price. That's the damage of the stock price. Basically, everybody now knows that the bully wears no clothes. They're just like any other company. They are not omni-channel when they need to be and that they got high on themselves. But they're a good company. They will respond. So the net story is pay attention to people that come from the slime. When you become successful, don't get high on yourself. And please recognize that sooner or later, everybody catches up. Yes. We're recording this on April the 29th. And the reason I say that is I want to ask you this question uh, to end this off. Uh, this week, uh, Elon Musk and Twitter agreed uh, to get married. Elon Musk is buying the company. What are your initial thoughts on this transaction and the future of Twitter? So it's hard to tell because in effect, there are what I call the bull case and the bear case. Okay. Yeah. And the bull case is everything that Elon Musk has done as a business person. I'm not talking about you know, sometimes his personality quirks, but I'm talking about 
business, okay? He has probably, with the exception of Steve Jobs, right, and maybe Bezos, right, changed the world for the better for more people than most people think, between mm -hmm. SpaceX, Boring Company, Tesla, Neuralink, okay? The man is basically a genius at levels that we don't actually appreciate and understand. Uh, and he's become the richest man in the world and twice as rich as Jeff Bezos, right? When his stock price was at its highest, maybe a little different today, but still the richest man in the world. And when this particular person uh, who is a great innovator, who truly understands how Twitter works, takes Twitter, he could take it into a completely different world. So think about it is, you know, sometimes when you want to revolutionize a company, you take it private, which is what he's done. You know, private equity buys a company, cleans it up and takes it out. So that's, so all of that's the bull case, right? That he will significantly take away the financial pressure. He will improve the product. He will change the people or keep the right people and do that. Okay, here's the bear case. And I don't mm. know which of these are gonna wear out because it's too early. Yeah. The bear case, is this is a case of overreach that a world-class person became bored let his ego get in the way and may have over leveraged himself which will affect the tesla stock price which has already begun to get impacted that in effect that the future of twitter is not really about the future of twitter it's about the future of tesla okay and that what happens on Twitter will indicate three things. It'll indicate number one, how Tesla's stock price works. Number two, how quickly SpaceX goes public because he needs to raise money, right? And number three, uh, you know, whether he's overreached. I don't know, okay? So I'm hoping for the bull case because I'm a fan of Twitter. I'm a fan of Elon Musk, again, as what he's done and, and his Twitter. But there is a case which is sort of a bear case, which is the underlying financial economics because he's highly, highly leveraged. I mean, you know, if you think about it, his total, um, he bought Twitter for $44 billion of which between his guarantees and the debt that he's taking, he's paid 31 billion. In 2018, three years ago, his total value, his total net worth was 21 billion. It's gone up to 200 plus billion because of Tesla, right? And so to a great extent, this is Tesla buying Twitter. Mm. I mean, you know, Tesla's yes. stock price basically enabling Twitter. And therefore I would look at, this is the real impact is gonna be on Tesla's stock price, SpaceX going public, right? And a whole bunch of other stuff, but it should be very interesting. But I always remember and I always try to get people to recognize that many of these people from Bezos to Jobs to Musk are so absolutely amazing that compared to what we are, they're giants. So yeah. I just say, I hope he hasn't overreached, but it feels a little strange. Rashad, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Uh, if people want to subscribe, to your fascinating newsletter, where's the, where's the best place for them to go? So it's at R-I-S-H-A-D, which is my first name, dot substack.com, S-U-B-S-D-A-C-K.com. It's completely free, uh, and it's a different topic every Sunday. 
five or six minutes, and it also includes a new artist every Sunday. So hopefully that'll be fun. Wonderful, Richard. Thank you so much for your time. Welcome. Thank you. Power your advertising. Working with Active International enables you to fund your advertising using your company's own products, assets, or even services. We have over 30 years' experience connecting and bringing value to businesses all over the globe, helping many brands scale up into household names. Want to achieve more from your marketing spend? Contact Active International today.